I'd like for you to open to two places in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The title of my message today is probably part one, In Danger of Man's Wisdom. In Danger of Man's Wisdom. You know, when you get away for a weekend, you get away and you, I like to be quiet and think and listen to what other people are saying. And you realize that there's so many different ways that Christians see things. There's so many different ways that Christians have an opinion about going or what's right or what's wrong, or what you should do or shouldn't do. And these Christians with these different ideas about God, Christianity, what the verse of Scripture means, you begin to develop your own little way of seeing things. Now, we would call that man's wisdom, how man figures it out, how man reaches a conclusion about what is said, or what man is going to do with what the Bible says. How many of you know there's a lot of things the Bible says that man really doesn't want to have to do? So in his own wisdom, he begins to think about it, ask a lot of questions, accumulate a lot of different answers and forms what he's going to believe about that. That's man's wisdom. And the Bible seems to contrast both Old and New Testaments, the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God, or the way man has determined, decided, and conclusions he has reached is indifference to what God has stated and what he wants. And so we all can look around, any of us can, I haven't read the verse yet, but I will, we can all look around and realize that a lot of people are going a lot of different directions. A lot of people have different attitudes about God and His Word as seen by your lifestyle because of some kind of influence somewhere in your life. Something in you didn't want to do what God said, so you begin to accumulate friends who don't want to do that, and you feel comfort in that group or something like that. That's a problem today in America. I call it a danger because you can fall into that. Any of us can. Churches are full of people that don't want to know what God says. They want to know what man thinks it says so they can form their life on an easier platform than what the Bible says. And they like that, and it's in a religious atmosphere. Therefore, who's to say it's not right? My way is good as your way. That's the wisdom of men. And there's a danger in that. Danger means a liability to injury or harm or some form of grief or failure that can come into your life. And I'll promise you this. The wisdom of man always leads to damage and liability. Always. There's not a time it doesn't. And the other side of danger is protection and safeguard. And that only comes when you do things God's way. The only protected, assured people in life are those who are willing to let God be God, just do what He says, whether you fully understand it or not, and trust in the wisdom of God to get you through life. That's the opposite of man's wisdom. Now, let's read Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4. There are many such warnings in the Bible like Colossians 2, 4. We're only going to read a couple of them. He begins in the first three verses by talking about God being God. 
Then we get to verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Now, enticing words means persuasive speech. The kind of people you like to listen to. And that's popular today. It always was popular. There's nothing wrong with being persuasive. Because I think any of us who want to lead people to Christ or see people get saved want to be as persuasive, be used of God in a persuasive way to bring people to a saving relationship with Christ. There's nothing wrong with it. But sometimes it's used to turn men away with man's wisdom, of course. The word beguile, that first word there, it's a warning. He said, let no man beguile you with persuasive speech. Now, beguile means to deceive or to mislead by false reasoning. And by this false reasoning, I would say they would use something that is rational or something that makes sense and is sensible, that fits in your lifestyle. And this new modern time we're in, the way of thinking, this high-tech age, things have changed. The Bible was good for its time, but you know, today it's kind of different and we can't exactly do it that way today. And therefore, then comes creeping into your life the influence of the devil by which you are beguiled. In all cases and always, absolutely always, every lie that is ever told is inspired by the devil. Remember that in John 8, 44, he said, You are of your father, the devil, for he was a liar from the beginning, and he makes a lie, and all lies are by him and of him. And any time you are misled spiritually, any time you are misled spiritually, it is because of the influence of the devil. Now, I think some people are misled spiritually in an honest way. A man didn't know any better. He thought he was right. He was trained to say this or trained that way. Or it's what somebody he respected said, this is what something means. And so he said that because he really believed it meant that. Now, while that is inspired, if it's wrong, and an error inspired by the devil, he didn't know it was wrong. Now, later on, he learns that it's right. Hopefully, he has enough of what it takes to admit he was wrong and reinform his crowd. But the word beguile, again, has to do to mislead by false reasoning. Now, you think of that for just a moment before we go on. To mislead by false reasoning. It would be like saying, now, look, all of us know that, you know, the Bible uses the word healing and I'm the Lord that heals you. But now let's think about it. If he meant that the way a lot of people read that, then we would all be healed. There wouldn't be any sick people in the church, and if nobody was sick, nobody would die. Now, people think like that. They would reason like that. We would all be well, and if prosperity was true, we would all have a lot of money and a lot of property. We'd all be rich and famous, two chickens in a pot, two cars in a garage. Here it comes. But now let's be reasonable about this. We know that God doesn't do that because look around at how many people haven't experienced that. They're good people. We go to church. We try. We don't, and we're not getting that. So therefore, it must mean something else. So in that way, by appealing to your way of life and what you've learned in life, reasoning, you begin to take people from what God said to something God did not say, where most people are. They accept that, they admit to that, and that's where they live. And then you got a church full of people that fight the truth all their life. Church. 
They fight the truth. Their leaders write books against the truth. They cannot accept the plain statements of God about what he said because they don't see it in other people. A young man told me once, he said, if God was going to heal anybody, he would have healed those great theologians during the Reformation time and so on and so forth. And many of them died sick or broke or whatever. He said, so this message is not right. It doesn't matter whether they believe or had faith or they had light on healing or not. They believe that God healed you because you were great, famous, or gifted, or useful to God. And therefore, promises came to you. Well, that would mean most people in the congregation are left out. Because you'll never be famous. I'm not either, so... But we go back and say, no, that's not true. God said He would heal who believed. Well, now, we all believe. Well, apparently not. Not on His terms. We have an idea of what believe means, but we exercise our view of what believe means, and we're not getting anything, therefore God is not straight with us. And so they turn away from God, and they turn to something else. They appeal to that kind of logic and reasoning to people, and people turn away from God too. They close their Bibles when you talk about gifts and healings. Or tongues, that's not for today either, the anti-charismatic world says. And if God was going to give anybody that gift, I would have it because I want it. I go to church. I've asked for it. Whether you believe for it or not, doesn't matter. You ask for it, and that's enough. And therefore, because a leader asked for it, he didn't get it. Therefore, it's not for today. So people set that aside. They're beguiled. They have been misled. The warning from Paul was, in verse 4, he said, This I say, lest any man, because man is the one that does this, lest any man should beguile you or mislead you or deceive you or turn you aside from the right way by using enticing words of man's wisdom. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 4. Paul said, "...in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words." Let me ask you something. Why would Paul ever boast of his inabilities? You'll never be famous today if you do that. You've got to brag today. You've got to point to the masses of people you've affected in order for people to have this spiritual high-class respect for you. You must have accomplished something for people to look up to you. So man goes about doing things that make people look up to him. Getting a large church, building a nice, huge, big building that is sensational in all aspects. Beautiful, and nobody's arguing with that. And they point to this, that this man came to town, and this is what he did, and boy, this is that, and this is thus and so. This is the way of a man. Paul said, my speech and my preaching would never bring that. I'll never be a high-class preacher. I'll never be invited to all the big meetings. I'll never be one they all admire. He said, my speech and my preaching, they were not with persuasive words of man's view of things, man's wisdom. But he said, in demonstration of power of the Holy Spirit, he said, I know one thing among you and one thing only. 
It's not what I think, but it's what the Bible says. They didn't even have a Bible then. All he was referring to was the Old Testament and the revelation that God was giving in the church to, about it, which became the New Covenant. He said, I didn't come here with a lot of stuff to say that would make you follow me instead of Jesus. I didn't come along in your life to take his place and give you some physical figure so you can follow and admire and look up to and then be disappointed when I'm gone. No, he said, I came here to tell you one thing. That's Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no other way that is right. Because if I start giving you something else, if I start replacing who Jesus is supposed to be to all of us, by having your admiration cast on somebody else or something else, then you're going to be misled and beguiled. Let me go back to that word just for one more minute. Beguiled. It's a word you're familiar with. Turn to James chapter 1 and verse 22 where he says what Jesus taught us to say. But be ye doers of the word. Is that clear? Now, I do not need to explain that, do I? You think about it, just look at it. Do I need to explain what be ye doers of the word? That's simple. Just whatever it says, do it. Just do what it says. Be ye doers of the word and not just hears only. For if I only listen to the Word, I go to church as a member of a church, and I listen to sermons and participate in them, active and loyal and so forth. If I only go to listen, but I do not, as a primary focus of my life, do what the Bible says with my life, then what have I done to myself? What does the end of that verse say? Verse 22. What does it say he does what to himself? He deceives himself. That is, he beguiles himself. Can we be beguiled? We can be beguiled without somebody explaining that to us. All we have to do is sit in church, fold our arms, and say, well, I don't know about that. Now, I don't know about that. I don't know about that Sermon on the Mount stuff. I don't know about all that. Well, do you have 24 hours of every day like I do? Or you cut short? Do you have a Bible? Does your brain work? Sit down and find out for yourself. If the Bible doesn't mean what it says, there will be other passages to confirm that it didn't mean that God was only giving us something else there. But if it says what it says, there will be other verses to confirm that it says what it says. Now, if you don't want to do it because of your lifestyle, your aspirations in life, or your popularity might be flawed... If you live this way, I've been here. If I'm going to live this way, I'm going to lose you and you and you and you as friends. Because you will not like this new lifestyle because it will affect you and you knowing you should live this way and you don't want to. So if I'm going to remain your friend, I have to avoid this. So we kind of hide ourselves behind the little shield that says, I don't know about that. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to know about that? Do you really want to know if that's true or not? There's only one source of truth. It never comes with man. It is always with God. There's only one source. Now, 
Be ye doers of the word, and not just hearers only. If you're not going to live it, there's no reason for you to be here. I'm not trying to run anybody off, obviously. But if you don't want to live it, then don't listen to it, because you're coming under judgment. He that knoweth to do good, but refuses to do it, to that person, it is sin. That's a bad word, because it means it severs your relationship with God. You may go on being religious, but God will say, I never knew you. We had no relationship because of sin. I'm just talking to you this morning about what, at this time in my life, at this time in history, looking at the world, the Christian world, the trends, the confusion, the foolishness in the world. And it's all being encouraged by foolish man. The dumb things that man is coming up with, the dumb things that happen in the church, this is God's move, barking like dogs in churches. Barking like dogs, justified by ministers saying, well, you know, dogs were warning in the Old Testament. You know, the dog, the dumb dogs that could not bark. You know, they didn't bark. They didn't see the enemy coming out of these. This is God showing us that the dogs are barking now. And laughing hilariously during a sober message and could not stop. Jerking. This is God. Who said it was God? And people by the bunches, without knowledge of the word, dove into that, followed these leaders, the wisdom of man, and found themselves engaged in fun and activity. Why aren't they still doing it today? Because they got tired of it. If that was a move, why isn't it still going on right now? Why aren't they still doing the same thing now? Why aren't people still following that now? Because movements are like that. They just come and they go. They come and they go. They come and they go. Man promotes stuff. He gets bored. We want to change the scenery. We get bored. We get tired of hearing the Word. We don't want to keep hearing the same Word, the same themes over and over and over again. We've heard that once. We're not necessarily living it, but we've heard it. Let's go on. Let's let's do something else. We're bored. I sat in here the other night, in Wednesday night, and listened to a song, listened to songs, and enjoyed singing those songs I know so well and singing them again and again, 40 years later again, they have never lost their message. They've never lost their meaning. They've never grown old. This is the day. I think that was the first one we learned. This is the day that the Lord... And it really is. It still is, really, the day the Lord has made. But I'm not going to be rejoicing and be happy because that's an old song. I've already heard it before. <laughs> or you can say, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will, as an act of my will, a choice I make because I want to make it be glad and rejoice in it. <gasps> This is the day. You could reach up there and smack your face and say, pay attention, and you might enjoy it again. Smack your face. Well, you might inform yourself that this is a good song. But this is what this word means. 
One translation says about this word, deceiving your own self, it said, but be ye doers of the word and not only hearers of it, blinding yourselves from false ideas. Let me ask you something. Who teaches mankind to turn away from God? Why do Christians who have heard something, why are they described in the Bible in the last days when we should be becoming rich in Jesus? Why is it in the latter days people will have itching ears and seek out for themselves those people who will tell them what they want to hear and not what God says? Why would they do that? Why would a man do that? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Turn to Psalm 50. Man has created God to be what he wants and not who God is. He has redefined God. He always did. Psalms 50, beginning in verse 16. Now listen carefully at these words. But unto the wicked God saith, What have you to do with declaring my statutes, or that you should take my covenant in your mouth? Now listen. God is saying to people who don't want Him to be God, who are doing their best to redefine what the Bible says so that it doesn't say exactly what it says, but it says the way I like to hear it. Who has told you to put my words in your mouth. Who gave you that? To the wicked. Verse 17. Seeing that you hate instruction. And casteth my words behind thee. Who would do that? God's complaint in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And right now, today. To a lot of people. Who don't want to live it the way God said. Who don't want it to mean what it says. But they want some heady person to redefine what the Bible says so that God didn't mean what he said, but that God dismisses me from having to be so strict in my walk. Prophesy uh, smooth things. Talk about illusions. That is, make up something. Make it sound good with your persuasive speech so that we don't have to go home feeling... <laughs> Christians are like that today. They were like that 2,000 years ago. They were like that 4,000 years ago. Nothing has ever changed because the devil does the same thing today as he did then. So he said, who is it that told you to put my word in your mouth? You who cast my word behind your back and you who hate instruction. Verse 18, when thou sawest the thief... Then thou consentest with him, and you've been partakers with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and God said, and I kept silent. I didn't say anything. And man concludes this. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself. 
Thou thoughtest that I was all together like you because you did all this stuff. You got by with it. You've gotten by with it for years. Your mother got by with it. Your daddy got by with it. Granny got by with it. You're getting by with it. And your children are getting by with it. And you thought that I didn't care. You thought maybe God didn't know what to do about it anyway because you don't know what to do about it. And God is pretty much like you. Like us. The beguilers of this age say that God is like us. They would say this, you know, about something, oh, marriage or divorce or healing or prosperity, anything. Well, now they would say, God knows. Now, here we go. Here is man redefining God with his wisdom. Well, now we know that God said this or he said that, but now don't you think... I mean, come on. Let's be real about this. Look around. Don't you think that God, and then we begin to redefine the leniency of God, that he's not so strict, the way is not quite so narrow, that we don't have to try very hard. And after all, when you go to a funeral, aren't they all saved? Isn't everybody okay now? God isn't quite as demanding as we thought he was. He said all of that to give us something to think about, but he didn't really mean that. If somebody preached like that, would that be redefining God? What if I said, you know, you come to the Lord, and there is nothing that God can hold you that you must do in order to be saved, because if you have to do anything, then your salvation is by works, and we know that it isn't. Therefore, once you believe in God, your name was written in heaven. You're going to heaven. You may lose your rewards on this earth because you live the way you've always lived, but you're going to heaven. I think you just redefined God. I do. You just told a man he doesn't have to live right. He doesn't have to. He's not responsible for what he does. He'll be charged with a loss of rewards, but he'll still go to heaven. Because in somebody's estimation of the man, he was a good man, she was a good woman. And, you know, I know they did a lot of things wrong. All right, all right. But listen, don't you think God knows and understands? He cares about people like that, don't you think? Don't you think? I mean, we don't have to be here every week, do we? I mean, don't you think that God knows that we have other things to do besides just being in church? Or you can't give money all the time to a religious group or a system or church or the preacher. I mean, we got other bills to pay, too. Don't you think God understands that? He knows that, doesn't he? So what happens to people thinking like that? They begin to be beguiled themselves, begin to make decisions. And your human weakness begins to say, yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I never heard it quite that way before, but I like that. I think that's pretty good. Some people would call that logic. Logic. Logic is a word not easily defined. It's used in math and used in other ways. And in looking at dictionaries this week, logic is not something just a few statements and you've got it. But one of the explanations that I did come up with that I think I can use this morning, which I think is the primary problem with man's wisdom, is logic. And logic is a science that investigates the principles governing correct or reliable information. Let's say here, the Bible, this is correct and reliable information. I believe it is. 
Amen. I believe this book is correct. I believe the information is reliable and can be trusted forever. I do not believe it's flawed. I do not believe it is a lie. I believe that what it says, it says forever and can never be changed because when it was first said, it was right and didn't need to be changed. No corrections or additions need to be made. Now, logic comes up as this science of investigation. It says, well, okay. Now, I read that, and I'm not going to deny that it says what it says. I mean, it does say that by his stripes of Jesus you were healed. All right, that's good. So, But now, let us reason together a little bit about this. Let us use a little common sense. Let us not just throw caution to the wind and just be Bible thumpers <laughs> or right-wingers that give no thought to common sense. Let us be reasonable about this. Don't you think... Don't you think by his stripes you were healed? He was talking about your sins. I mean, isn't it true that every sinner that comes to Christ and repents is forgiven? There's no question about that. But you can't say that that all of them that come to Christ and, and they say that the healing is in the atonement, you can't say they all got healed because most of the ones who believe that already have died sick. Therefore, logically, I cannot accept the fact that healing is in the atonement or for God's people because I don't see it. And, of course, me, if I don't see it, it couldn't be true. Now, people like that kind of stuff, especially the more you think you're an intelligent person, the more educated you seem to think you are, the more you begin to like this kind of thinking. Because it will develop into a philosophy of life in which you begin to delve into loftier ideas about what God is all about. The simplicity of Christ all gives way to some kind of difficult theology. And you'd make it difficult enough, and a lot of people begin to say, I don't like all that theology, that stuff is that, that's just, that's just, you know, that's just too. I've heard a lot of preachers say that. So they avoid it. And yet it is one of the foundational needs in any preacher's life is to know what he's doing and what he's preaching is based on. If he doesn't have that, he'll preach logic and reason and he'll become a deceiver. His wisdom will replace the wisdom of God. He begins to humanize God. How many times do people change what the Bible means by saying, come on now, don't you think... I just heard this the other day on the news. A preacher, a religious figurehead of some sort on a religious talk show, the question was asked, a man's wife had a mental disorder, a degenerative mental state. She was going downhill mentally and no longer could think like she used to function or recognize things. Way too young in life for this to be going on. Maybe some disease set it off or... Something like that. So the question was asked, well, what should I do in a case like this? You know, here I am. I'm still young. Maybe she was in an accident and she couldn't ever, you know, whatever. I don't know. But he said, what should I do? And he said, well, I think in this case you would be free to divorce her and marry somebody else, but always have the responsibility of taking care of her. Because after all, in a sense, she is dead. You hear that, and I think this came from a leading once presidential candidate with a big talk show and been on a religious talk show for years. You think it's all right 
to dismiss this wife because she could no longer perform for you or do what you want to do, even though you made a covenant with her? Now, the Bible doesn't say that, but he didn't say the Bible said. He just said, well, I think that's the wisdom of man. And coming from some of the people that it comes from, it seems that, yeah, that has authority because look who said it. Oh, I think. Have you ever read your Bible? If my wife left me and she ran off with somebody else, well, I'm free to marry because I didn't do anything wrong. Well, what does the Scripture say? Well, don't confuse my feelings with Scripture. Let me tell you something about divorce and marriage, second marriages and remarriages. First of all, there are not very many people that know a whole lot about it. They have opinions about it, which is called man's wisdom, but they don't know much about it. And he can get in a lot of trouble with a lot of people about that. But when a man makes a covenant with a woman, he's locked in. Read Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. He is locked in for the duration of their lives with each other. And when you begin discussing divorce and remarriage with most people, the issue, and this has been my experience, the discussion almost always goes from what the Bible says to don't you think. Well, don't you think? I mean, after all, why would God hold me accountable? Why would I have to suffer for that? And why would it? And it's not fair. And therefore, you begin to make decisions based on that. Well, what does Scripture say? Look at him real good before you marry him. Look at her real good for you. And then keep looking. And look a little, little while longer. When you think you've looked long enough, look a little more. Because that's what you get to see every morning for the rest of your life. Now, if you don't want to live like that, don't marry. Don't mess it up anymore. God said, this is the way, walk ye in it. And people run to any human source they can run to to tell me I don't have to do that. That's man's wisdom, and the danger of it is that it misleads you to the place where God must judge you. Shouldn't be like that, but it sure happens like that. Man has a way he wants it to be. Turn to Proverbs 14 or 16, either one of those two you want. Proverbs 14 or 16. When's the last time you ever heard that? Take your pick, 14.12 or 16.25. You've heard this before. There is a way. There is a way that seemeth right unto man. Now, seemeth right means what? Now, just think about it for a moment. That's what you're here to do. You're supposed to listen and think and then decide whether you want to believe this or not. There is a way that seemeth right. Would that mean then that people look at religion today in America, all the various kinds and forms and methods of religion, don't they all seem right? You say, well, nobody's perfect. All right, let's say none of these yet are perfect in all their exercises. Do they all use the Bible? Yeah, they all use the Bible. Do they all in some way mention God or Jesus? Yeah. Well, then they're all okay. 
Now, if you say no, then what makes those that talk about Jesus, sing songs, give money, believe in being saved and all, why are they wrong? What makes any of them wrong? What makes any of them to be that I don't want to be a part of it? Why? What's wrong? They're all similar. They will say to each other when they meet in the annual ecumenical movement in the city, you know, we're all believing the same God. We're all going to the same place. We just have a different way we're getting there. There's a way that seemeth right. Nobody's ever going to say, well, that's not right. If you back off here, you probably backed off there. You back off here. The next thing you know, you change your theology to fit your experience or your opinions, and you're no longer a Christian. There's a way that seemeth right unto whom? Back to man. There's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof, he says, are the ways of death. In some ethical or emotional sense, things seem right. People like it. They come by the masses to attend it. They seem to be getting what they want when they come. They're loyal to it. They support it. Their children follow them and they become a part of it too. It seems so right. We don't know if it's perfect or not, but it seems to minister to me. You know, I've been a, in the Christian church my whole life, and as far as I know, it's as good as any of them. Baptists say they're better, but I don't think they are. Methodists, they don't stay together long enough. I like our longer service. You know, people say stuff. Methodists maybe preach longer than we, I don't know. I didn't linger there very long. We have all these different ways that are devised by man. Every denominational system is a man-made system. The government in all of them are devised by man. They're all governed to be like our government. They have checks and balances in all of them, and that is reasonable. Well, we ought to have that. We can't have one man being the whole show. <laughs> We've had one man show here for how many years? 31? Well, that's true. It is true. Nobody votes. I do the deciding. Well, this ought to be good. That ought to be good out there in the, other <laughs> in the world. Pass that tape around. Oh, or disc. It could be like that. That doesn't have to be wrong. That doesn't have to be a flaw or an error or a warning to anybody. It doesn't have to be. I don't know who I would trust to do what I'm doing, but I trust myself because I know what I believe. And all the world goes to great lengths to say, oh, no. And we set up systems within the church to do this and to hire preachers or to fire preachers or congregational vote. It's like a little democratic system. How did it get here? It's not in the Scriptures. You don't find that in the Bible. You say, well, a preacher gets too much money. What if a lot of people like what he says and come to support him? Should somebody in the church be assigned each week? Now, don't, now don't, now don't y'all give much this week because he's already got enough. Should we do that? 
or put a sign back there, no giving this week. He got enough last week. I'm serious. You all are laughing. I'm serious. What do you do about don't muzzle the ox? What do you do with that? Do you just ignore it and set it aside and say, well, that worked then, but not for today? Or let those that are taught in the Word communicate with Him, that, well, no, we don't want to do that here. Who's changing everything? What's wrong with doing it God's way? Have we survived here for 30 some odd years, more than most people have survived in any place I've ever known? Maybe because of a desire to do it God's way, even though it might be controversial? Does God honor His Word? So we shouldn't be so afraid to do it then, but people are. And I know there's things I've taught on that when I teach on, oh, brother, talk about thou shalt not kill. How many hackles went up over that? Who opened up the Red Sea? Who shut it up? Was anybody in it? Huh. Who caused the walls of Jericho to fall down flat? Priests? The horns? Or did God do it? The stones that fell out of heaven, were they sent by Gabriel or by God? What was the warning to God's people? The inhabitants of the land are an abomination. They are so abominable they must be removed because if you leave them here, they will corrupt you. And they did. Execution. Not in the New Testament. You've heard it said, but he said, let me tell you something Jesus said. I'm just rehashing this. You love your enemies. You do good to those who persecute you and misuse you and treat you wrong. If your enemy hits you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek to him. Who believes that anywhere in Christianity, in all these cathedrals of holiness? Who believes that? Who believes it? And if they don't believe it, who changed it? What heady figure, what school of theology, what personalities come along and say, well, now we know this, but this is what we do. You hit me on the right cheek, I may turn the left cheek to you, but after that, I'm going to wear you out. That's not what it says. That's how different God is making us. And how simple to me the Christian message and the life really is. It is as simple as a symbol to hear and decide to do. And it's all between you and God. I'm not hired to preach this to you. I'm not hired to tell you this. I'm sent. I didn't ask to be sent. I could have picked 10,000 better than me. And you would say, amen to that. But what it is, it is. And the way it is, it is. As I told a man once in my life, we were discussing some of these things. I said, I am who I am. I believe what I believe, and I will not change. Stubborn, perhaps. Maybe that's how I survived. I don't know. Had a Baptist preacher grab me by the lapel one, grab me right here on my iron shirt. You're the most stubborn man I ever saw. And I remember looking back, he was mad. I really didn't know what to do. I mean, he was a preacher. Can't shove him back. You better get your hands off. <clears throat> you can't do that. 
I straightened up my shirt and I said, maybe that's why I survived. I said this right after I got saved. Because he was trying to tell me that I was wrong about something. Maybe it was tongues. I don't know. And I wouldn't hear it. I said, I don't believe that. Bible says. Yeah, but the Bible meant. No, the Bible said. <laughs> and the Bible says if if preacher shakes you by the lapel, you turn to your back. Let him shake the back of your shirt. Like a... <laughs> but he said in this verse, there is a way that seems right unto man. But the end of his way is what? I didn't write that. Let me give it to you and let it be a solemn word. The end of that way is death. There are many ways that seem right to a lot of people, but the Bible says the end of that way is away from God, away from what He said, away from the effect that His way has on man. It doesn't make men like that. And it's death. No wonder Jesus said, I never knew you. No wonder. No wonder. Mankind has labored for many years, at least since Isaiah's time, to try to make the Bible say something different than what it says because it demands so much. The way he said is narrow that leads to life. And few, few find it. And the man's wisdom comes along and he says, well, now we know when he says, if you there be that find, he didn't mean that not many are not going. He didn't say that. But see, the word few in this context means, what does it mean? Well, then he explains it away so that it doesn't mean few at all. Just a few million. I'm telling you this morning while I'm standing here right now, that there is a grave danger in this very hour of multitudes of Christians departing from the faith, not from a church, not from religion, not from a Christian way, but from the truth. That's one of the signs of the last days. It won't be seen in empty churches. Departing from the faith, we always thought churches are going to get smaller and smaller and going to be empty. No, no. It says specifically they'll depart from the faith. Not from the system, from the faith. They will not do it. They will not aspire to that. They will not give in to that because they don't want to. They absolutely don't want to. Turn to Proverbs 12. Look at verse 15. The way of a fool, that's the opposite of wise. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes as he sees it. His opinions. His way is how he lives. How he conducts his affairs. He doesn't even know what the Bible says. And if he did know, he wouldn't accept it. He's figured it out for himself or herself. Religion's done it. But he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. We're living in a time in which people can't accept being wrong. Look in Proverbs 30. Just go a few pages back to chapter 30. And look at verse 12. There is a generation. Is that the one we're in now? There is a generation that is pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Filthiness is a word which means excrement. I'm not going to explain that anymore. 
It's a bad word. It's a nasty word. But this is how God describes people who are living apart from, different from the way he said to live. He said they are not cleansed from their filthiness. What are we going to do about what's right? If there is a way that seemeth right unto man, how can we know what is right? Go all the way back to Exodus 15. Praise the Lord for Exodus. Exodus 15 and verse 26. Exodus 15 and verse 26. Here's how simple it is. This is the choice that all of you in this room and out there in the electronic world, this is a decision you can make. If thou wilt diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God and will do what is right in his sight. Now, what if man does not speak what God speaks? Isaiah 8.20, if they speak not according to this word, any of them, any of you, any of us, if we speak not according to this word, if we justify our sins or our weaknesses or our foolishness, then you're a fool. That's not wise because you're going to be judged for that. But he said, if any man speak not according to his word, what's wrong with him? He has no light. He has no light. He's blind. Or what he sees, he wouldn't call blindness because the light in him, which Jesus said, if the light in you is darkness, how you see and how you figure out through life and how you're walking, if the Bible calls it darkness, oh, you're walking, you may be religious, but you're headed for death. Is that fair? Of course it's fair. It's fair because God said it. It doesn't have to be like that with any of us. But notice again, Exodus 15, 26. If, if you, sitting here this morning, you, if you, whoever you are, how old you are, whatever your circumstances, conditions are, if you will diligently hearken, pay attention, give heed. Approach the Word as though this is the absolute greatest need in my life. I come here this morning because the Word... Of God is the great need in my life. It's the only truth. And because it's the only truth, it's the only word that God said he will watch over to perform. It is the word that will judge us all. Jesus said, I am the way. That's what Jesus is. That's what we're all about. There is no other. There's no other truth. There's no other life. You can't find life any other way. There is no other way to find eternal life in Jesus. There is no other truth than Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And the world thinks we're ranting, raving right-wingers when we say that because one of the things the world hates is to say that Jesus is the only way. Well, some countries don't believe in Jesus, then they perish. Well, don't you think they're God or is it? No. I sure don't. I absolutely do not. You're asking the wrong person that question. Jesus is the only way. And Jesus said, if they will diligently hearken to my word and do that which is right in my sight, then he said, I will bless them. If you don't want to do what is right in his sight, he won't bless you, period. It just doesn't work that way. 
You set yourself up. But do that which is right, he said, in his sight. And again, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Now let me ask you all a question. Then why would any of us wander off? Why would we be upset with truth? If we we hear truth, why are we bothered by it? I don't ask you to believe what I say. I tell all of you, don't believe anything I say. Don't believe because I said it. You believe it because you see it in the Word. You're accountable to God for what's in that book. You have two eyes. You've got a time. You live in a free country. You can do this. See what it says. Follow it. If you don't want to follow it, then find somebody else to follow. But everything else is death. How narrow is that? Pretty narrow, isn't it? 43 years of my life. 43 years. 40 Three years, and this is where I've come. You know what I say after 43 years? Wow. Wow. I have gotten far better than I deserve. I've been tolerated far more than I should have been. I have been loved to a degree that I'd never be worthy of that. Why would he pick somebody like you and me out of some gutter? We're worthless. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 about people who want to follow Paul and Apollos and Peter. You know, these churches are full of people that look for somebody to follow. Paul said, we are nothing. Oh, but you're learning people. We are nothing. We are simply human beings that God sent to say something. That is all we are. My speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom. My enemies say his speech is contemptible, talking to Paul. I'm nothing. I have an anointing. I know God. I have seen Jesus. I have talked with Him. I know what's going on. This is the truth. However it comes out of my mouth, it is the only way in life that is right. And if any of these vain babblers that the Bible talks about, any of these vain babblers and house wreckers, when they come along with all of this classy speech and all this, now I'll tell you what to do. When they start that stuff, shut your mind. If they speak not according to the Word of God. If they're anti-charismatic, I don't want anything to do with them. I'm not better than they are. I didn't say that. But they've already eliminated the one thing Jesus sent on the day of Pentecost in order to bring us divine end-time information. They've already ruled it out. And when Jesus comes and a whole lot of Christians don't go up in the rapture, a whole lot of the church folks are going to say, well, I don't know what that was we're hearing about, but it wasn't the rapture because we're still here. If God would have taken anybody, He would have taken us. Remember what Jesus said to the Laodicean church? So full of itself. Look what we've done. Look at our surroundings, our accomplishments. We've had to build another building on this one to put all the people in it. We have, what, 2,000 here this morning? 
If you're listening to a CD, we don't have that many here. We are pleased with the educated preacher and all of his accomplishments. (laughs) I'm laughing now. Jesus said, you're wretched. You're miserable. You are naked. And you're blind. Wow. At the age where you like to think you've done something right in your life, and you're trying to expose it, and you're kind of proud of what you've done, where you've been, how far you've come, and all the years you labored in the world. Oh! You start boasting that, you are miserable. You are wretched. You are naked. You're blind. No one of them said, oh, but Lord, look what we've done. Look what we... He said, I can see now why he would say, I never knew you. You turned your back on me time after time after time. You turned your back on me. Let me close with this one. Isaiah 40, verse 9. The very last three words in verse 9 say what? Behold your God. God says things like in verse 8, the Word of God shall endure forever. It'll never pass away. It'll never be gone. Never shall be. God begins to describe Himself as God and nobody else is like Him. You read from here down through verse 18. You read the verses in there and God describes Himself to these people. Behold your God. You don't need to take away anything from Him or add anything to it. Be glad that He comes to you as the supreme, divine, only true God. And then in verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto Him? Then he talks here about idolatry, and it doesn't say this, but as I read this this week, I thought, you know, in a spiritual sense, again, I don't want to mislead you here, and I don't want you to to take this as what this means, but in a spiritual sense, I begin seeing that what follows the next two verses exemplifies religious systems. For example, verse 19, The workman melteth, goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and cast the silver chains. And we take gold and silver and make some image out of it. Or we take gold and silver and deck it over a wooden stick. Verse 20, He that is so impoverished that he hath no offering chooseth a tree that will not rot. That he seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that will not be moved. So here we go. We're going to cut down a tree. People want a God. They wanted a king in Samuel because they wanted what other people had. They wanted to be like other people. God is spirit. You can't see God, but he is there. They said, we want a king to rule over us. And when they got a king, that just was the beginning stage of idolatry. Then they went to the hills of the countries they captured in Palestine, where all the groves were and where the idols were. And this was their gods. And the people said, well, let's try one of them. They tried it in the wilderness. Was it not Aaron who said, you know, the people wanted this thing and they gave me their gold and silver and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf? Right. 
I just threw it all in the fire. Whop! I got out of the way. And here came a big golden calf. And Aaron said, this is your God. This is who led us out of Egypt. He couldn't have. He just came out of the fire. Our logic would think like that. That couldn't be. They cut the tree down, deck it out, make it look like something. Or put some teeth on it or put some ears or make it look mean or something. Now take this silver and gold and let me see how it looks. Ooh-wee, that looks weird. Make it a little weirder. Or they make a calf with a man's head on it. Or a goat with a man's head on it. Or something weird. And they rolled it out to the masses of people. And some religious figure says, this is how God is right here. This is what God has given us. Hallelujah. And they bow to the thing. Now notice. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? What is he like? Is he like that? Is he like that thing right there? Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One. Then he says, lift up your eyes on high. Look at what I have made. Look at all the creation. This is why I said in Romans chapter 1, he revealed himself in the heavens to the heathens. But they did not want to be ruled by God. So they made their own system. And he said in Romans 1, the very thing that they're doing, they know is wrong, but they do it anyway. That's the way it is today. What man creates, he creates a system. He writes a book. He becomes famous. People flock from all over the country to be in a church to watch people fall down, giggle, laugh, or wiggle, or whatever. And they oh, for an spiritual experience. They run to this thing and try to get a spiritual experience. They get in line. Oh, pray for me in this place. It's like idolatry. It becomes an idol. It becomes what man has made. It becomes man's system that people must depend on. They go to their leaders and they trust in everything that is said and they live according to the dictates of a system. And it's all based on the wisdom of man. Who will deceive you before Jesus comes? To whom and for whom will you give up your convictions? Will it be your children's school activities? A lot of people do that. They give up a lot of things they've been taught are necessary priorities in order to put their children on a little pedestal. The children become like a little idol, little gods. They worship what they do and they, oh, will you do that? Now, Brother Hamilton, you're meddling now. Maybe I am. But remember, I have to give an account to God for you all. I do. Who will talk you out of your relationship with Jesus? Who will tell you that you don't have to do all of that? You hear it all the time. Who will tell you it's not necessary to go that far? Who will tell you that? Who will show you an easier way, a less way? And what will make you glad to do it that way? Who will make you comfortable and happy instead of convicted? Who in your lifetime... This morning, from this place, we don't know about tomorrow or next week, but who, if there are tomorrows and next weeks and you're not here, who will talk you out of it? Who will turn you away? Who will do that? 
Because if somebody can, then you're in danger today. Now, next week, I want to talk about how to avoid the dangers that man brings. How to avoid them. Because you see, man's great flaw, his reason for turning back, is that he wants to be a God. That's why he says, well, I think my way is as good as your way. Who are you to tell me that you're better off than me? Well, that's your interpretation. Don't people say that? And so we all have our own private interpretations. We all have our own little private ways. We become little gods because we're all justifying everything we do by ourselves and within ourselves. We don't have to attend. We don't have to sing. We don't have to worship. We don't have to give. We don't have to do anything because the way I see it is like this. My assistant basketball coach said, well, if God is as good as the Bible says he is, he won't judge me for my sin. If God is loving and good, because, see here, go back to man's wisdom. If God is loving and good, just like he would have thought himself as a parent, I wouldn't judge my children. So he wouldn't judge me because he thought us God was altogether like as he is. So he would judge men like you would judge men. God is not God. We take his place. We sit on our own little thrones. We do our own little things because we are God. And we join a church, and we get big enough without Christ, and we try to change it. We join it to change it, to make it like we want because we've never been born again. Folks, these are the last days. These are the times that we need to be careful and be discerning and to know in whom we have believed. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. Help us this morning to realize, if we have, that we have surrendered our lives to you. We have dropped our weapons of this life. We put our hands in the air. We have surrendered. You master us now because we have surrendered to you. We have no argument. We have no right to an argument. We are yours. If we've never done that, if we're on the fringe, working on where we should stand, maybe a young person or two here this morning, make them to see that the only way through this life is surrender. Letting Jesus have total control of your life. This could be the day that you could make a decision that you'll never regret. But the decision has to be made by you because nobody can make it for you. May God help you. and May he bless you. As we approach our communion table this morning, I ask in the name of Jesus to cause us to realize that it was Jesus and what he did that made it possible for us to be here, to be forgiven, to have joy and peace at the cost of his blood and his life in this world. As we reflect on him and what he has done for us and how he has brought us together, we ask you to inspire us in this time of our communion. In Jesus' name, amen.